Next up on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. The Leviathan Chronicles Season 2 The story thus far. The situation in Leviathan continues to deteriorate. With continuing power outages and multiple failures of its pressure shield, life within the Great Cavern has spiraled downward. McAllen Orsall has been named Special Council Chair of Leviathan, despite objections by Mayor Zachariah Sinter and Prime Officer Gamsuk Khan, and has ordered all non-essential immortals on the surface to return to their underwater city to combat the deadly computer virus that has threatened its survival. Based on information provided to her by Mai Lee, McAllen has assembled a strike force and is racing underwater towards Iron Gate, a secret Black Door facility housed within an abandoned oil platform in the Gulf of Alaska. She hopes to find information there that will shed light on where the escaped Seraxian aliens might be. Oberlin and Tully have escaped from the custody of Black Door Enforcement Agent Celeste Harris and are currently fugitives in Naha City, Okinawa. They rely upon the assistance of a dubious acquaintance from their past, Fish Egg Freddy, to keep them hidden from the authorities. And in Las Vegas, Harlequin is recuperating from the injuries he sustained escaping Leviathan. His partner in crime, Lizette Mansabile, awaits his recovery as he has hinted that their trip to Sin City may have a hidden agenda. But back in the Himalayan mountains, Wit Roberts and Senshin are slowly making their way out of the remote kingdom of Bhutan. Senshin has assured Wit that the key to finding the Seraxian aliens lies in New York City. The two of them are in a race against time to reach New York before the Edeners find the tracking device. And the aliens. And now, Chapter 31, Matchpoint. Bhutong Mountain Region, Bhutan. The morning sun ascended slowly over the land of the Thunder Dragon, casting its warming rays across the steep pine-filled gorges and the high mountains and monasteries. <sighs> right, right. We get on the trail south. Is there any coffee yet? There's tea. Tea, then. After forcing down a bowl of rice millet, cheese, and chilies for breakfast, Whit Roberts and Senshin stepped outside to join the shepherd and his five children and wife for the long journey to Kerje, where they could trade their goods in a larger marketplace. Here. Put these on. Senshin handed Wit a heavy leather coat and a hat similar to the one worn by the shepherd. It'll get warmer as we descend to a lower altitude. You really feel these are necessary? I'm less concerned about the warmth as I am disguise. We just escaped from a black door assault team by the skin of our teeth. They'll have satellite recon combing the Himalayas looking for us. We need to blend in and stay in groups. How's your shoulder? It's fine. It's... I mean, I'll manage. <laughs> no choice, right? Ascension handed Wit a small, tightly wrapped green leaf. It's betel nut. It'll numb the pain a bit and give you some energy for the hike down. I... Uh, thanks, Senshin. Thank you. Senshin nodded once, then turned to don a similar coat as the shepherd. The men slowly trudged downward through the Hergong Valley. Their group was a small caravan of horses, yaks, singing children, and nine adults. The Bhutanese moved deftly through rocks and snow while the two men trudged behind, Wit being the slowest. The snow slowly turned to wet moss, 
the moss soon turning to low shrubs which eventually gave way to a dense coniferous forest. The Bhutanese shepherd that had sheltered Wit and Sension had carved a crude crutch for Wit to lean upon. His broken ribs ached despite the tight linen bandage wrapped around his chest. His injury combined with the altitude and his inability to expand his chest to take a breath left Wit with a crippling headache and a desperate need to get more oxygen into his body. Wit, are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm fine. Let's keep moving. Wit, hold up a second. Numkor Kanan! Numkor Kanan! Wit, you need to take a break. We don't have time. We have to get to the jet. Wit, you're at risk for pulmonary edema. Every time you cough, you're injuring your ribs further. Injuries will slow us down, Wit. Now, I have medical facilities on board the plane, but the more you hurt yourself... You said the key to finding the aliens is a tracking device in New York. We need to keep moving. If the other immortals in Leviathan find it first, it, it could mean the end of the world. You keep saying that. What do you mean? Sension was stalling partially to keep Wit stationary, but a deep part of him was worried that he might be speaking the truth. We had a deal. Who? The aliens and Black Door. You don't get it, Senshin. The aliens weren't innocent travelers that accidentally crashed on Earth. They were a scouting party. Hey, look ahead. Someone else is coming up the trail. There's a group of them. They're speaking English. I thought you said this area was remote. It is. Hey there. How are you gentlemen doing? Hey, hey man, what's up? Hey man. A group of four young men were trudging up the narrow trail being led by a short, squat Asian man wearing military fatigues. There were two yaks in tow that were carrying several North Face duffel bags and Osprey backpacks. The four men all looked to be under 30 years in age and strongly built. They were each wearing the latest Alpine clothing from Columbia and Mountain Hardware. I didn't expect to see any Americans in these parts. Uh, yeah, no, 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 we're the only ones we've seen. What, do you, what are you guys doing? We're part of a Red Cross survey expedition. We're trying to establish supply routes to deliver medicine to underserved communities in Bhutan. That's really cool, man. Wit turned to the men's guide. Kuzo Zengpao La. The guide nodded with a strained smile and tucked his head down, progressing further up the trail away from the larger group. Where are you guys headed? We were going towards... Snowman Trek. We're, we're hiking the Snowman Trek. Totally stoked. It's been awesome so far. That sounds splendid. Do you think the weather's gonna hold up? We should have a good window for the next 72 hours. There's a low pressure system working west from India, but I think the inversion layer- We've got some bomb-proof shells in case it rains. You guys should have clear skies for the rest of your descent, so happy trails, man. We have to motor to make it to our camp spot for the night, so, you know, see, see you guys later. The four Americans and the guide proceeded up the narrow trail, leaving Sension and Wit alone with the Shepherd's family, who seem agitated and whispering among themselves. I don't think those were simple tourists. Did you see their Global Star sat phone? I did. Something is wrong. They were lying about where they were going. The lead guy seemed nervous in his speech. I also noticed none of the shepherds said anything to their guide. No. In fact, their guide seemed to make efforts to create distance between him and our group, hiding his face and digging into one of their bags on that yak. Did you notice something else about their guide? His eyes. He was... he was Nepalese. Exactly. Not Bhutanese. Unusual. Tourists in Bhutan are required to have an escort with them at all times. It seems unusual that they wouldn't have a local looking after a group of Americans. I still don't get the lying part. The snowman trek. It's one of the hardest treks in the world. It takes over 30 days and contains several passes over 15,000 feet. So? So the trailhead is about 200 miles in the other direction. What I don't get is that they didn't look like they had enough supplies for a 30-day trek. 
At least, not the snowman. Someone must be meeting them for more supplies. Or airdropping them. Why would a bunch of well-outfitted Americans be trying to sneak into a remote corner of Bhutan? Oh my god, of course. Gangkar Puensum. It's considered the highest unclimbed mountain in the world. Summiting is prohibited by the Bhutanese government out of respect for local customs. The mountain people believe divine spirits reside upon the peaks and don't wish to be disturbed. Those guys are trying to sneak up the mountain. That could be very good news for us. How come? They're heading up. We're heading down. Right. But what does it mean if a group of American climbers are sneaking up a remote trail to a forbidden mountain being led by a Nepalese guide against the wishes of the local government? It means... No one knows they're here. Exactly. Probably as few people as possible. But look at their supplies. It also means they must have some support somewhere along the way. Air support. Maybe. The B-3 Eurocopters can operate above 20,000 feet, but it would be hard to orchestrate a helicopter drop all the way from Nepal. On the other hand, Gankar Puensum lies right on the Tibetan border. Maybe they paid somebody off. That sat phone they had with them is for talking to someone. They must have some expedition support somewhere close. How much farther do we have, Senshin? Another 15 miles would get us into the valley, but we have a lot more switchbacks and river crossings. I'm not sure how well he can move. It'll still take us days. Days? We don't have that kind of time. I'm not sure what we can do without drawing too much attention to ourselves. Well, maybe you and I can enlist the mountain gods and find a quicker way down. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> Those who trespass against the gods must be punished. New York City. There's got to be something for dinner in here. Mm. Leftover chicken. Eh, some lettuce that doesn't look shabby. Oh, well, not too shabby. Maybe I'll just have a yogurt. Or maybe I can do something with those potatoes. Of course, that would require cooking. And some ginger beef with scallions and an order of soup dumplings would only require dialing. Hi, I'd like to place an order. Kinderman. Rebecca Kinderman sat curled up in her oversized sofa, watching TV in her pajamas while nibbling on the edges of a Xiaolong soup dumpling. She gently slurped the delicious broth from delicate pockets of fragrant dough while flipping through channels. There was an exciting news piece on the rover Curiosity that had just landed on the surface of Mars that briefly captivated Rebecca, before she ultimately settled on an episode of Downton Abbey that she had already seen. My god, I would kill for that dress. Oh, actually, I would kill for that car. Why would they even let the chauffeur? <laughs> Shit, I must have left the phone off the hook. Getting <laughs> up. It's weird because... Rebecca returned to her sofa and sat in her favorite well-worn spot, wiggling her toes in her shirling slippers. She deftly maneuvered her chopsticks to gather the last succulent morsel of ginger beef from the paper container and relished a long sip of slightly chilled Beckman Vineyard Grenache. She loved pairing cheap takeout with not-so-cheap red and rosé wines. I should have been a countess. Or duchess. Or whatever Maggie Smith is. I think I just want to sit around a pretty mansion all day and tell people what I think of them. <laughs> oh. oh crap, it's 11 o'clock already. A palpable sense of dread washed over Rebecca. The late evening. Time to retire. Bedtime. This was when she had no choice but to yield to unconsciousness. To sleep. To allow her mind to be vulnerable. That's when her tormentor found its opening. Don't you come tonight. Don't fucking try it. Rebecca went through her typical bedtime ritual, washing her face and brushing her teeth before bed. She tried to tell herself that she wasn't stalling, that she wasn't trying to delay the inevitable. She exited her bathroom and stared at her bed. Wait, the pills! I almost forgot. The doctor prescribed me some Seroquel. Please work tonight. Please. 
piecework. Rebecca shook two pills into her hand, paused, then shook out a third. She took a hard sip directly from the bottle of Grenache she had brought into the bedroom and swallowed the pills before sliding under her sheets to watch the stray headlights of passing taxis dance across her ceiling. Despite the steady drone of her air conditioning, the room felt warm, leaving Rebecca to toss about her bed trying to find pockets of coolness. The night. It always used to be the best part of my day. When anything good ever happens. I leave work. I go out on dates. I drink with my friends. Have great dinners. Sometimes I fuck. Now it's dread. It's fear. I don't, don't want, want this, this anymore. anymore. Please, please don't let me dream. Her thoughts drifted to the single thing that had poisoned her nights for the past year. The demon. I am not afraid. afraid. I won't be afraid. You can't hurt me. You can scare me, but I know you can't hurt me. She flipped over onto her right side and closed her eyes tightly, before flipping back again to her left. I can control my mind. Come on, Rebecca. Think of something else. Anything. Imagine a beautiful place. A peaceful place where no one can hurt you. Where no one can find you. Come on, Rebecca. Think. Within moments, her pupils started darting rapidly under her eyelids. Soon, her thoughts drifted back to the distant Mars rover curiosity so far from Earth. She tried imagining it from above, a flashing silver beetle standing starkly in contrast to the scarlet rocks that surrounded it, its six wheels splayed with its mast proudly extended. She could see it so clearly. She was next to it now. She could look down and see her bare feet growing stained as grains of red Martian sand blew all over her. I'm alone here. Completely and utterly alone. And instead of provoking terror, The thought reassured and comforted Rebecca. She was only wearing her thin nightgown as she ran her hands along her sides, relishing the cool, crisp air of Mars. She wasn't bothered by the lack of oxygen or her inability to return home. She could only think of one thing. I'm safe here. She looked at the probe, curiosity, and felt a strange kinship with it. (laughs) We're both a little awkward looking. Sort of out of place, don't you think? But we're both really smart, aren't we? aren't we? She reached out to stroke the side of the rover, but before she could, the probe sprang to life and started clumsily moving forward toward the distant Martian horizon. Rebecca tried to follow, but her feet refused to move. She was frozen in place watching Curiosity roll forward before it dissolved into crimson dust just a few meters ahead of her. No! Her feet were free now and the air was no longer crisp. It grew icier and more penetrating with each gust of Martian wind. The sky and the shadows all seemed to suddenly darken, and soon everything she saw was the color of blood. It's so cold. I've got to get warm. I have to find shelter quickly. There's a storm coming. I I can feel it. In the distance, the entire horizon soon became engulfed by red dust clouds undulating in the shrieking winds. Lightning ripped across the alien sky. She turned slowly in a complete circle to take in the desolate, deteriorating landscape. Everything was either gray or the deep color of rust. She was alone. No. Rebecca quickly became more aware of the temperature dropping below freezing as the surrounding air turned frigid. There's no one here. There's no life on Mars. There can't be. Come closer, Rebecca. Come closer to me. I know you. I know who you are. The wind howled again as flakes of cold red sand stabbed at her face, causing her eyes to tear. She felt the drops evaporate on her cheek, and all the heat and moisture being drawn out of her body. She labored to take deep breaths of frozen air that stabbed at her lungs. Rebecca soon fell to her knees, letting her hands become coated in the icy red dirt that surrounded her. So cold. So cold. 
Rebecca lifted her head and saw a mammoth stone temple ahead of her, in a space that had been vacant only seconds ago. Rebecca. No. Please. I know who you are. The stinging dust spun furiously around her and patches of frost were forming on Rebecca's bare skin. Her feet felt heavy but seemed to move independently toward the temple. I don't want to go there. I won't go inside. Please don't make me. Her body moved like a zombie, independent from her thoughts and desperate pleas. The swirling storm created a narrow corridor towards the entrance of the temple. As Rebecca grew closer, she strained to look inside to see what or who was calling her from within. But all she could see beyond the door was pitch blackness. As soon as Rebecca moved inside, a stone door slammed shut behind her. The instant darkness was replaced by faint candlelight. The temple was bathed in shadows, but she could make out a small, plain altar at the end of a narrow corridor. Rebecca, finally, we're in the same house Rebecca slowly approached the altar, feeling claustrophobic beside the tight walls of the corridor. A dark silhouette moved on top of the altar. It glowed a dark red in the candlelight. It's you! I don't want to be here! Please! Please! What do you want from me? I'm only here because you wanted it. You wanted the truth, Suddenly, the candles flickered and multiplied. The room quickly became littered with small dots of hot light that grew rapidly in numbers. The temperature in the room started to climb noticeably, and Rebecca felt her throat tighten. The altar soon disappeared from view, as did the demon's silhouette. Sweat started to pour from Rebecca's skin and images of fire permeated her vision. No, no, no! I don't want to burn! Please, I'm burning! Please let me go! The walls of the temple started to move inward and the ceiling lowered downward. The candles grew to become thick torches and the hot stone walls of the temple glowed red with deadly heat. Rebecca realized that she was trapped in an oven, a searing, shrinking ah! oven. She pounded on the hot stone encroaching upon her, but her skin instantly seared and stuck to the tightening walls. Her feet were bloody with heat blisters and she kept leaping upward to find a way to escape, but there was none. Her demon was burning her alive. Through the flames she could see him approaching, his shape now solidifying in the flames. He was shirtless, and the sinister display of his musculature seemed to radiate menace. His skin and eyes were a deep crimson, and his fingers resembled talons. You're not real! You're not real! The demon extended his arms and reached to scrape his finger against Rebecca's blistered skin. Instantly, the searing heat faded, and Rebecca found herself back in her apartment lying in her bed. She inhaled deeply and could feel the cool moisture in the air-conditioned room. She was no longer on fire, and there was no temple or demon to haunt her. She was back on West 74th Street, her sheets damp with sweat and her hands warm and moist when she pressed them together. Oh, oh, oh my God, these dreams. Jesus fucking Christ, I just want them to stop. What do I have to do? What pills do I have to I just want them to end me, please. Rebecca cried into her hands desperately. And then, 
She stopped. That's the... Did I go to the bathroom in my dream? I don't normally sleepwalk. Why is the faucet running? Rebecca rose from her bed and walked wearily to her bathroom. The faucet was wide open and the sink nearly overflowing with water. That's so weird. The light isn't even on. Why would I... Her hands twisted the faucet shut. And then she heard it. The bathtub? Rebecca pulled back the shower curtain and discovered her bathtub was running as well. Cold water almost reached the rim of the cast iron tub. She quickly reached over and slammed the water shut and opened the drain to allow the water to escape. Wait, the curtain. The shower curtain was closed. Why would I turn on the water if I wasn't going in? Rebecca froze. More water? She sprinted into the living room and almost slipped on the slip wooden floor that was now covered in a half a centimeter of water. What the hell? A small waterfall now erupted out of her kitchen sink onto the floor as water poured out of the open faucet. Rebecca reached to close it, and without thinking, she moved towards the guest bathroom where she seemed to know yet another faucet would be open. She slammed the door open to her guest bath and shut off the running water yet again. And for the first time, there was silence in her apartment, and every inch of her body was wet. Oh, Christ! (coughs) Rebecca stood perfectly still with her body refusing any breath. No, no. Her bedroom faucet, the one she had just shut off moments ago, was running. That's impossible. I was just there. I I was in the bathroom. I turned off the water. How can it? Unless I'm 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 not alone. Or I'm still dreaming. Rebecca thought back and remembered that she had exceeded the recommended dosage of her Seroquel in addition to consuming it with a glass of wine. It's okay. I'm going to be okay. It's just a dream. I'm not here. This isn't really my apartment. The water isn't really running. I just need to wake up. Rebecca walked back into her bedroom and entered her master bathroom. The faucet that she had turned off moments ago was now fully open again. She took a deep breath as she twisted the handle shut, praying she would not hear another sound of running water. In the doorway to her bathroom stood a six-foot-tall man with blood-red skin. He reared menacingly at her. It was him. It was the demon. No, no. Sweet up here. Oh, yeah. Can you believe no one comes up here? Yeah, but look what we had to do to pull this off. If anyone finds us, we'll be in a Bhutanese jail not doing Red Bull ads. No, they'll probably ship us to India. We'll be put in an Indian jail. Oh, that's terrific. That's a big improvement, Kevin. (laughs) Adam, do you hear that? We're going to an Indian jail. How's that sound? Do you like jail curry? Jail vindaloo? (laughs) Hey, guys, hold up a minute. We might not be the only ones here. Look at these. Fresh footprints. Hey, hold hold up, hold up! Hey, hey guys, check this out. Look at that. Those prints can't be more than a few hours old. They lead over by that outcropping. Come on, let's check it out. The four climbers and their Sherpa walked in the snow towards a large boulder field caused by a landslide from the connecting mountain. When they got within five meters of the nearest car-sized boulder, they stopped. That's impossible. The footprints, they... They just stop, like right here. Maybe they jumped onto one of the boulders. No way, that's like a 20 foot leap. This sucks. If someone else gets a summit before we do, we don't get paid. Wait, guys, shut up. Did you just hear something? Yeah, the sound of my bank account being empty and drained. No, shut the fuck up, listen. Okay, maybe it was nothing. 
Dude, if we... The snow around the four climbers exploded. Senshin punched the first climber hard in the throat and quickly twisted the ice axe out of his hand. Spinning off the choking man, Senshin reeled the axe behind his head before unleashing it into the forehead of the second climber. Wit didn't have Senshin's speed or health, but had chewed on two more packets of beetle nut, leaving him anxious, high, and euphoric. He grabbed the second ice axe from the fallen climber and sprinted forward to lunge the pointed, sharp edge through the torso of the fleeing shelter. Senshin spun around to launch an attack on the third climber, but he miscalculated the man's position. The third climber had escaped and was now running 50 meters down the trail. The fourth climber had enough time to unsheath the climbing knife. Who are you guys? Who the fuck are you In guys? In his agitated state, the last climber focused solely on Senshin wielding the bloody ice axe, failing to see Whit Roberts behind him. The climber swung clumsily at Senshin, trying to connect the point of his knife with Senshin's face. But he telegraphed the attack, and before he realized he had missed, Senshin had broken the man's wrist. Whit Roberts leapt from behind and held the other titanium ice axe against the fourth climber's throat. Now listen, we need someone that can talk. That can be you, or I can wait for your friend to recover. I'll just crush your voice box now. No way! I'd rather fucking die! Hey, hero, do it for your friend. Five meters away, Senshin was holding up the first climber he attacked. The man was still clutching his throat and having great difficulty breathing. Senshin stood behind him, supporting and restraining the man with his right hand. And with his left, Senshin plunged the climbing knife into the man's arm socket. He won't bleed out unless I let him. I can twist the knife just a millimeter and put your buddy through more pain than you can imagine. Now, we'd like to use your radio. The question is, do you feel like talking? Moments later, Whit Roberts and Senshin dragged the two captive climbers to the boulder field where they sat down on the ground, sheltered from the worst of the Himalayan wind. The climbers were shivering desperately, which was exactly what Whit Roberts wanted. While Senshin might have been skilled in combat, interrogation was Whit Roberts' specialty. Get on the sat phone. You call in your aerial support we, now. We don't have any support. We just got lost on the way. Wrong to... answer. Senshin twisted the knife still lodged in the other climber's shoulder. Okay, okay. We'll call for the chopper, but the pilot isn't supposed to land. Unless we have a life-threatening emergency. If I kill another one of your friends, will that be enough life being threatened okay, for okay. you? Okay, okay. Look, just let him go and I'll... Senshin sprang up, punching the climber Whip was holding in the stomach. Before following up with a jaw punch that sent two teeth flying out of his mouth, Senshin grabbed the climber's cheeks and brought him inches from his own face. Are you seriously trying to negotiate with us? Two of your friends are dead. Your guide is dead. Your other friend has his life in your hands, and your life is in our hands. You think now is the time to make demands? You have only one way to get out of here alive. I want you to repeat what I just said. Say it. I have only one way to get out of here alive. Tell me that way. I have to do what you tell me. Exactly. Now you call in your support. You tell them that you need medical evac right away and that one of your guys has lost consciousness and isn't breathing. You tell them to get here now. The climber retrieved the expedition sat phone, opened the case and started sobbing while waiting for the phone to power up. Once he knew the phone had linked with its geosynchronous satellite, he told the supply pilot to land near the current coordinates. I read Tango 4, en route to coordinates. Echo out. He hung up the phone and waited while the two murderers stared at him. 40 minutes later, 
Xin Huang had been flying helicopters for the past 20 years. He flew patrol missions near the North Korean border and rescue flights over the South China Sea. But there was nothing that frightened him more than high-altitude flying in the volatile Himalayans. He didn't want to be in the air today. It was illegal for him to fly over the Bhutan border, but this area was extremely remote, and Bhutan didn't maintain any air force to speak of. And then there was the money. Even after dividing up the American bribe amongst the other members of the sparsely manned military base in Kangmar, he still made the equivalent of two years' salary. He just needed to make the run quick. Approaching coordinates. Tango 4, this is Echo 2. Do you copy? What is the condition of your climber? Tango 4, do you copy? Come in, Tango 4. <sighs> Idiots don't have their radio on. The helicopter reached the designated coordinates, and the pilot could see the four climbers. One of them was prone, lying on the snow. The pilot ordered his co-pilot to crawl back to the main cabin to activate the winch, lowering the rescue basket down to the frozen plateau. Okay. He thought how the entire mission was ill-advised from the start. Whoa. The helicopter dropped 20 feet in altitude as it took on the weight of the rescue climber. The air was so thin at 17,000 feet that the rotor blades had to work twice as hard to provide lift. With the rescued climber now safely within the cabin, they could veer off the tight Himalayan ravines, get the climber to the hospital and refuel in Kangmar. You in? Yes? Okay? We go! We go now! <laughs> Actually, let's stick around for a minute. I really like the view. You have been listening to Season 2 of The Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. To listen to the entire first half of Season 2 right now and get exclusive storyline, purchase the director's cut of Season 2 at leviathanchronicles.com. For more updates and news, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. Chauncey Haworth, Mark Slade and Lothar Tuppen. The demented minds behind the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour bring you... Twisted Pulp Magazine. A journey beyond surreality to worlds you never knew or hoped existed. Worlds of the supernatural. Worlds of dark satire. Worlds of nightmarish futures. Twisted Pulp Magazine. If you thought the 21st century was weird enough already, think again. Twisted Pulp Magazine. A step beyond your grandfather's pulp. Available at digitalvaudeville.com. That's D-I-G-I-T-A-L-V-A-U-D-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. Music.